Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Before we get in today's episode, I wanted to let you all know that I was a guest on another podcast hosted by a previous guest back by the woodpile. Nick Jimenez has a new podcast focused on the nature and fight for liberty called Liberated. And on the episode he had me on, we talked about American history, natural rights, Cuba, China, and whack-a-mole. You can find that episode by going on to dademag.com, that's D-A-D-E-M-A-G.com, or by shooting me an email at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com, and I will send you a direct link. Now on with this show. As best as I can remember, when I was in high school, whenever the founding of the United States was talked about, nothing was said about the existence of slavery. In the last few generations, that omission has been corrected but with a narrative that perpetuates another omission, that being on how so many of the American founding generation opposed slavery and actually took measures to undo it. These and other willful deceptions is a large part of our conversation today with Dr. Dennis Bowman, professor of American history at the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University of Ohio. So let's get to getting the whole picture. So to set things up for, we're going to talk a lot about the American founding and slavery, but coming up to that time period, what was the state of slavery throughout the whole world? Well, uh, one of the things that is important to remember is that uh, the earliest uh, periods, uh, uh, really before history and prehistory, we have to refer to, there probably was slavery uh, then as well. It, it, it's fairly clear that slavery has existed for thousands of years and uh, and was widespread throughout the globe. That's one of the things that I think many people miss today when they want to talk about slavery, especially in the United States. Um, it has to be remembered that the origins of slavery probably were just uh, uh, little bands of people uh, who were fighting against one another and, and individuals were captured in battle instead of being killed would be enslaved. And so uh, at first, there probably wasn't much of a demand for slaves because there just wasn't uh, the type of labor system that would require a great deal of labor like uh, after the establishment of agriculture. Once you have the establishment of agriculture, then you have uh, a a greater demand for labor and uh, slaves could provide that and make the lives of uh, the enslavers easier. And so uh, this is one of the things that happens. And then, of course, later when you have the development of urban uh, centers, you have uh, slaves being brought there as well. And so one of the things that's interesting to think about is for the most part, I think, in the earliest periods, uh, with the little knowledge that we have uh, about slavery, and there's very little that, that we actually have. Uh, just in odd uh, documents, often clay tablets that happen to be preserved for one reason or another. And you have uh, lists of uh, palace goods, uh, and uh, on those lists would be names of slaves. And sometimes even give the the uh, work that they did uh, in textiles or something like that. Uh, 
And so in the earliest periods, there are probably just a very small number of slaves owned by the elite of society and uh, by kings. Uh, later on, of course, the, the institution developed more and was much more widespread. And uh, you have indications, for instance, uh, that uh, later in, in some societies, uh, slavery was was uh, was uh, throughout uh, the the uh, population. So, for instance, in 5th century Athens, a citizen, uh, according to some of the documents, w- would be considered poor if uh, he did not own a slave. And so there are times where there are just a large number of slaves, uh, supply of slaves, largely because of at the result of uh, of uh, warfare and uh, cities being captured. And, and usually the men would be killed and the women and children would be uh, sold into slavery. So you have that kind of thing going on as well. Now, one of the things that is interesting to consider also is uh, the circumstances of slaves. And uh, one of the things that we we learn for all periods of time is that there were a number of factors that led to uh, the, the circumstances. Uh, one of the things that we we learn a good deal about is um, the laws that uh, regulated slavery and the institution's organization. And uh, that's important to understanding uh, a slave's circumstances. For instance, in ancient uh, Sparta, uh, it's clear that uh, the state had forced uh, conquered people uh, from nearby territories who they called uh, the helots to work the land for the support of citizens of Sparta. And these citizens were were off, uh, called Spartiates. And uh, of course, the Spartiates, uh, being full fledged citizens of Sparta, uh, were maintained uh, through the agriculture of the Helots. And this allowed the Spartiates to, uh, to focus upon military training. And so the Helots would uh, be on the land, and uh, they were actually uh, assigned with land to individual Spartiates who were responsible to, uh, through these, these slaves to provide for their own maintenance in the, the town of Sparta. And it's clear that uh, the individual Spartiates uh, also had the power of life and death over them. So their situation was not what we would consider to be uh, a very favorable one uh, in any respect. Uh, and so it's it's very clear that their situation was not good. Uh, the Athenians, uh, to just contrast uh, a, another uh, another uh, Greek uh, city state in the way that they treated their slaves, it's clear that uh, the Athenians both uh, enslaved, conquered peoples, and purchased slaves as well. And the Athenians uh, employed slaves upon farms. Uh, they also manufactured goods and weapons if they were uh, city-dwelling slaves. And they also had a silver mine there that uh, was probably the worst situation that a slave could could be found, could find himself is working in a a mine. And uh, and often slaves were were put in the most uh, grueling and uh, horrible uh, types of uh, occupations. And uh, certainly the Romans used uh, slaves uh, for mining as well. Uh, the Greeks and Romans also seem to have regarded the testimony of slaves to be unreliable, so much so that whenever giving testimony to be presented in court, 
only that testimony provided under torture was valid. Yikes. And so you, you can contrast that to uh, the fact in the United States that slaves' testimony was not admitted at all, except in cases where it was exclusively uh, pertaining to a fellow slave or a free black person. But they were not allowed to, to testify against white people in court. We'll talk more about the the current political view of slavery in America a, a little bit later. But one thing I do want to mention is that a lot of times this idea is pushed forward that slavery uh, was just a, like a European thing, if anything. And so a lot of times like the, the African and uh, Arab slave trade doesn't get mentioned. Can you talk about those situations? One of the things that's it's very clear in Africa where... Uh, so many slaves were were captured, kidnapped uh, from their their families or villages. Is that uh, the initial uh, capture of slaves was was uh, done by fellow Africans? Uh, you of course had a lot of neighboring warfare warfare between neighboring tribes and villages, and uh, some of these uh, African communities uh, because they were uh, fairly powerful uh, militarily, were able to actually make a business of rounding up their neighbors and selling them to Europeans, to Arabs, and others who had a, a demand for slaves. And so that is uh, one of the things that happened. One of the the, the interesting things about slavery by where uh, uh, Arabs were purchasing slaves is that the male uh, slaves were all castrated. Mm. And indeed, not very many of them lived uh, the the uh, made the journey uh, and lived uh, from Africa all the way to the Middle East or North Africa, wherever it was that they were bringing these slaves, either to market uh, to some market wherever it might be. And it's clear that many of them died because they had to to cross some very uh, formidable. Uh, landscape and and so uh, so many of them died uh, probably more than even the uh, middle passage that uh, was uh, the typical fate of those slaves who made their way from Africa to the United States or other parts of the New World the Western Hemisphere and so uh, there's the there's another f- uh, form of slavery that's that's often forgotten is the fact that with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, which is modern-day Turkey, you had a large number of uh, Eastern Europeans who were enslaved. Uh, Also, there was uh, slavery that uh, came about uh, that was uh, largely through the efforts of the uh, Barbary Coast uh, pirates, pirate nations. And indeed, large numbers of Americans were enslaved in the uh, 17th and 18th century uh, or 18th and 19th century and this was a real problem Um, and uh, there were many not only uh, americans but uh, europeans and englishmen anybody any group of people who would uh, sell uh, the mediterranean could be captured and uh, could be enslaved and then they would be either enslaved there in, in north africa or could be sold to other markets uh, in the Arabian world or the Ottoman Empire. So, uh, and there are some estimates that actually there were more uh, Europeans enslaved 
uh, in that region than were Africans who were sent to the United States. And, and I don't know how reliable those estimates are by s- different scholars, but it's very clear that uh, that slavery was not something that was only uh, a an outrage uh, that was uh, perpetrated upon Africans alone. It was. Uh, all people are subject to slavery uh, throughout history. And indeed, we have slavery today. And uh, it's not inconceivable that if you were particularly unlucky and you were traveling someplace where they wanted to enslave you, you could be kidnapped and, and enslaved. And and it could happen to anybody today, even. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, the possibility of it is very remote today for, for Americans and, and uh, Europeans. But nevertheless, that is the situation. Now, there are a lot of women from East, uh, Eastern Europe who are find themselves in the, the sex trade. And uh, there's a lot of diabolical things that go on to, to bring about the enslavement of those women, as well as uh, some, some uh, very young children mm-hmm. uh, in different parts of the world where they're, they're basically tricked into uh, going somewhere and, and become enslaved, uh, especially in the sex trade. So it's a it's a really sad uh, state of affairs, but that's the reality today. So to bring us back to America, so before the revolution, my understanding of it is that England, for the most part, was hands off with the colonists. They sent them there, said, okay, it's fine. You can do whatever for the most part. Of course, eventually they started to tighten up control over certain things. But in that uh, time period, a few hundred years where the colonists were kind of doing their own thing, some ideas started to ferment, uh, ideas that were not uniquely American, but you know they were borrowing from England, borrowing from uh, French thinkers, uh, borrowing from the Greeks uh, and other folks. And so you start to get these ideas about you know limited government or liberty, you know uh, rights of individuals. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, one of the things that's that's very interesting is that indeed uh, the there are many ideas that were percolating in England and uh, in a good part of, uh, of Europe uh, where you had in what we refer to as enlightenment thinkers. And many of these individuals uh, developed ideas that, that became very influential in uh, 17th and 18th century uh, Europe in the West, I guess you could say, to talk about Europe and uh, United States as a, as a whole, because they, they did interact, uh, they did read each other's literature. Uh, Americans were mostly influenced by Europeans, not so much uh, Americans influencing Europeans, uh, especially in the early uh, colonial period of, of our history. But nevertheless, you did have some interchange between people. Um, and so uh, there, there was a great deal of interest in science, and in particular, the idea that you could learn and uh, better the situation of people uh, through the development of science and uh, various ideas. And one of the areas that, that was important uh, was explorations into politics. 
and different systems of politics. As you mentioned, uh, the the ancient uh, classical literature uh, of Greece, uh, Greece and Rome, was very influential upon Americans. They, they many of them studied Latin and Greek, could read the original documents, and uh, were very conversant in uh, some of the later literature as well. And so it, it's very interesting how that they, these ideas seem to be developed. And there was a back and forth and, and of course, debate between various thinkers about various issues. And so we have uh, fairly extensive literature that uh, we can look at that uh, was part of the influential literature that that Americans read. And so uh, certainly uh, one of the documents that I would point to that's very influential upon Americans, especially during the Revolutionary War period, period leading up to it and uh, during the war and even after, was uh, John Locke's uh, Second Treatise on Government, which really provided the basis upon which uh, revolution uh, was founded. And so uh, the idea that uh, people have the right to govern themselves uh, and uh, that government should be limited. Those are some of the basic ideas that there's, that uh, that uh, Locke placed in that document, which and of course the ideas of uh, natural law and natural rights was was uh, much of the premise of uh, of those ideas that he he uh, established. That is, I think, uh, probably I would have to place uh, Locke as one of the most influential thinkers. There, there also, though, were Whig uh, writers in, in Great Britain who had a great deal of influence upon Americans. And indeed, you have um, also the translation of ancient uh, documents by Tacitus, the Annales, and Germania uh, about the Germans, and, uh, and various other uh, documents written by him and others. And uh, these writers popularized many of these ideas and uh, pointed to the, the value of Republican government. Remember that uh, the early Roman uh, government was, was a, a government that was founded upon the idea that the people should be in charge, which is what Republican government is. Uh, and so uh, those are the ideals that that uh, very much influenced uh, Americans. And indeed, there's a very good book that was written in the 1960s by Bernard Balin, who's a very, uh, in my opinion, a very uh, esteemed and eminent uh, historian at uh, Harvard. And I don't hold Harvard against him. Uh, he's one of the good guys. But he wrote a book called <laughs> The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, which I recommend to everybody. It really delves into what it was that influenced the Americans to uh, eventually revolt. And uh, that book is probably the, the best book on that topic, bar none. So I recommend that to anybody who wants to really understand what was going on at that time in an in-depth way. You mentioned all these different ideas that are percolating in America pre the revolution. And amongst these ideas, uh, although it's a little faint at first, but there becomes this opinion that maybe slavery is a violation of all of those beliefs about personal liberty and the people governing and all that type of thing. Can you talk about where those 
early voices came from and how they uh, manifested and grew up to the revolution. Okay, yeah. Uh, I might want to start with uh, just the beginnings uh, of our, our history. Uh, one of the things that's often pointed to is that, uh, sl- that slavery began with uh, the first sales of Africans in Virginia in 1619, of which much has been made, as you know. Uh, but one of the things that is interesting is that uh, there's really little information that we have about them uh, beyond uh, just uh, a few stray documents. And one of the things that I think is is a mistake is to look at that that event as the beginning of slavery in the in what becomes the United States in British America at that time in 1619. It has to be remembered that um, there were no laws establishing slavery. In fact, there doesn't seem to have been any laws that established slavery in any part of uh, British America. Uh, instead, what happens is that it's almost an organic thing that happens. Uh, at first, uh, that is the creation of slavery. But at first, I think the the, the information that we have actually points to uh, from documents that we have that uh, in Virginia, the first Africans that uh, were sold probably were treated like white indentured servants were treated. They had a, a limited period of time that they were required to labor. And then at the end of that service, if they survived it, and that was always a question, uh, not only for uh, uh, indentured servants, but for even the individuals who were there in charge, was uh, whether or not you would survive to, to live for very long at all, because there were many things that, that uh, undermined uh, the health of people. Primarily, the most important, of course, was malaria. And uh, Africans seem to, to have, uh, of course, a natural uh, um, an immunity that had been built up through centuries to their because of their exposure to malaria, something that uh, uh, British uh, men and women did not have, and so uh, those early settlers often died from disease. Uh, but uh, anyway, the the indentured servants. It seems that these these Africans were indentured servants, and uh, many of them uh, were able to to uh, acquire property and be successful and even become wealthy in some some instances that we know of now later on sometime in the last quarter of the 17th century when there were less and less uh, in white indentured servants coming from england or europe into virginia and other places and with the severe need for labor uh, it soon dawned upon someone uh, that it would be better just to enslave the Africans than to to treat them as indentured servants and then you had permanent labor and complete control over that labor in a way that you you would not have before that and so over time almost organically you have the development of slavery in Virginia and so that's what happens I think uh, throughout British America. And uh, one of the things that, that has to be remembered, however, is that uh, the institution of slavery as it, as it was, um, as it developed at that time and evolved, uh, became very harsh and severe. 
and uh, and it's one of the disturbing features of slave law that uh, that uh, not exclusively uh, for for slaves because this is also true for free persons, but the severity of the law was 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 horrible. Uh, people were punished uh, for committing felons by whippings, mutilation, and death. And, and death was not an unusual punishment. In fact, uh, one of the things that the Enlightenment thinkers uh, were very keen to do was to to actually uh, uh, change the the laws that uh, that operated on everybody and to make it less severe and also to reduce the number of capital crimes. So those are the sorts of things that happened. Um, now, leading up to the period, getting to your question of uh, some of the ideas that led to abolitionist thought and anti-slavery uh, movements in the colonies was uh, the, the idea of, of uh, biblical ideas of equality. But uh, in large part, I think uh, the natural law ideas that had, that had been percolating for a long time from uh, classical periods in, in Greece and Rome, all the way through the Middle Middle, Age, Middle Ages and the Renaissance, down to uh, the period of uh, John Locke, where uh, he developed some of these ideas in a very unique way and uh, proclaimed that all people have uh, the natural right to life, liberty, and property. And so those are some of the ideas that are percolating there. One of the first tracks that were was published in uh, the in British America uh, in 1700 was Samuel Sewell's uh, writing about the biblical story of Joseph, which was a a tract against slavery. Hmm. And uh, so he was one of the early uh, individuals, uh, you could say. Uh, uh, pioneers in abolitionism. The Quakers, I think, are probably the most prominent religious group that uh, opposed uh, slavery. And so at first, uh, they focused on eliminating slavery within their own community. And indeed, there was a lot of pressure that was placed upon fellow Quakers within uh, their various local uh, churches to give up slaves, to free their slaves. And uh, this process went on for quite a while until 1775. It was finally determined by the Quakers that anybody who owned slaves would be excommunicated. And so by this means, the uh, Quakers were able to eradicate slavery within their own ranks. They also organized what was uh, probably the first abolitionist society. It was called the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, founded in 1775. And it seems that Benjamin Franklin seemed to have been influenced by the Quakers, at least in his later life. Uh, he became a prominent opponent to slavery. And of course, abolitionist thought and ideas was was not limited to uh, just Pennsylvania. Uh, for instance, in New York State, one of the, the prominent abolitionists from this period was Alexander Hamilton. And uh, he was a native of the Caribbean islands and uh, had very first greatly uh, and horrible firsthand knowledge of perhaps the most uh, severe slavery system in the world. And it's clear that uh, over time he 
was very much influenced by many of these Enlightenment uh, writers and thinkers and uh, adopted an abolitionist uh, viewpoint for himself. And so during the American Revolution, for instance, he supported the efforts of John Lawrence. I don't know if you've, you've ever come across his name, but he was a, a fellow officer from South Carolina on the staff of uh, Washington who wished to enlist slaves into the American army including uh, those that were part of his own inheritance. And this effort stemmed from his own opposition to slavery, perceiving this to be an opportunity to begin the process of ending the institution in South Carolina and then more widespread. Hamilton was also one of the founders of uh, the Society for the, Promot excuse me, for the Promotion of the Manumission of Slaves in New York. And so you begin to see during this period a good deal of of, uh, of uh, widespread belief, I think, in, in the ideals of uh, natural law and natural rights and uh, the developing opposition to, to slavery, especially as you get into the Revolutionary uh, War period. And, uh, and indeed, much of the opposition to what Britain was doing was, was very much predicated upon these ideas of natural law. If, if there's equality, um, if uh, everyone has a right to life, liberty, and property, out of that uh, must come the idea of consent uh, to government. And this is where the Americans break ranks with the, the British and, uh, and begin to agitate for certain rights, in particular the right uh, not to be taxed by uh, an unrepresentative government, which they considered parliament to be. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, there were some things that he had written that eventually would be cut out, you know, under the, I guess, the uh, the council or whoever, I can't remember how they debated that. Was it the First Continental Congress, I think? Um, uh, it wasn't the First Continental Congress, but it was uh, the Continental Congress uh, that uh, was established uh, in 1774, I think the very first time, uh, to coordinate efforts between the various colonies. And so they all sent representatives uh, to the Congress and in 1776, when it was decided that indeed uh, the Americans would uh, declare their independence, uh, they gave uh, Jefferson and Madison prominently that role of uh, drafting a document. And in that draft were uh, various uh, interesting uh, parts. One of them was the condemnation of the king uh, for not allowing the colonies to uh, stop uh, the African slave trade. I think it's one of the most prominent parts of, of the document that was cut out. And uh, those cuts were made, I think, primarily at the behest of uh, the delegates from South Carolina and Georgia, mm -hmm. where, which, of course, their, their economies very much relied upon uh, slave labor. And uh, they were always, they seem to always have been the hardcore uh, pro-slavery individuals within uh, the United States. 
and they were from the very beginning, at the, the very birth of the nation, they uh, supported uh, slavery and, and wanted to, to ensure that it would not in any way be undermined. To bring up Jefferson and also Washington, you had them in contrast to people like Alexander Hamilton or Samuel Adams or even, even Franklin, who were Washington and Jefferson. They had slaves, but they were tortured by it. Like they, they knew it was wrong. They wrote against it. Uh, both of those guys would find their own ways of trying to deal with it. Uh, whereas on the other side, like I mentioned, Hamilton, Adams, and um, and also John Adams, and uh, oh, Franklin. In their cases, they they just didn't have slaves. I mean, I think I think Franklin had some initially, but he he let them go. Can you talk about that contrast? One of the the major problems that uh, that Jefferson had in particular was that. Uh, he was heavily in debt from uh, an early period in his life. Uh, when he married, he inherited a number of uh, slaves after the, the death of uh, his wife's father. And uh, with those slaves and other property came debts. And uh, one of the, the things that has to be remembered is that slaves could not be emancipated so long as a person had debt. And in fact, uh, according to the laws in the southern states where slavery was so prevalent, uh, slaves were the first property to be sold if, uh, if property was to be sold to pay off debts. In some respects, Jefferson was not free to, to emancipate his slaves. I think Washington was much more free to, to free his slaves if he had wanted, if he had really focused on that and uh, and and done so. But uh, certainly his efforts during the Revolutionary War uh, was a time where he had limited funds and uh, his farm at Mount Vernon was, was often not uh, very efficiently managed during that time. And so it would not have been impossible for Washington to have uh, freed his slaves much sooner uh, instead of uh, doing it uh, through his the his will at at his death, I'm not sure that I would I would characterize Washington as having been uh, tortured by slavery, the institution of slavery. Though I do think that he I'm not sure how to characterize it. He did believe that slavery was wrong and that it should be phased out. Of course, he was a very conservative man, and and that meant that he didn't want to do anything that would disrupt society. And so that always has to be taken into account when you have large numbers of slaves in a slave society. What's going to happen when those slaves are free? That has to be taken into account. And that was the the, the real difficult question that uh, no real good answer seemed to ever have been given. And a lot of that, uh, the problem was premised on the idea that uh, black people could never be the equals of uh, of whites in American society at that time. And that was a commonly held belief that, uh, that you, you could not have social and political equality with uh, black people. And, and indeed, I think it probably was impossible given the, the prejudices of the time. But uh, this uh, certainly was a, a prevailing racist attitude, but I don't think it was anything like the, the kind of ugly racism that uh, we often think about when we think of, uh, of racism. In many societies, there there is kind of a mild form of racism where people consider themselves to be superior, uh, and there are certain 
discriminations that that are imposed upon people that that uh, that are not uh, able to acquire much uh, political power within that society but they're not they're not uh, treated uh, very harshly and severely overall uh, I don't want to diminish that that form of racism in any way but in, in the American colonies and later as a country there certainly was a prevalent uh, form of racism and uh, but it should be remembered that during this period of uh, the Revolutionary War uh, the ideals of uh, the American Revolution of uh, equality and natural right did have an influence and impact upon societies, especially in the North. And you see that if you consider the fact that uh, that uh, there were many of these these early uh, these states in the early period who in the North uh, freed all their slaves, uh, beginning with uh, Vermont in 1776. And all of these uh, states also, uh, when they established uh, state constitutions, really uh, drafted their constitutions uh, based on the foundation of principles uh, that they considered to, would establish uh, and affect the safety and happiness of the people. And they included uh, uh, terminology that was very similar to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, for instance, in Virginia's uh, constitution, it said that all men are by nature equally free and independent. And, and indeed, it's, it's that draft of, of the constitution by George Mason that influenced uh, Jefferson's drafting of the Declaration of Independence. In Pennsylvania, the Constitution says that all men are born equally free and independent. Vermont, that all men are born equally free and independent. Massachusetts, that all men are born free and equal. New Hampshire, that all men are born equally free and independent. I could go on. And and this shows that uh, indeed those ideas of natural right and natural law were were evident, uh, at least among the, 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 uh, the ruling class, the, the legislators and the drafters of the constitutions from that period of time. And so uh, it, it's fairly clear that, that uh, those were the predominant ideas and that uh, indeed when they used the term all men, they meant everyone. They did not mean to, to exclude anyone, including black people. And uh, and that comes becomes clear if you look at uh, some of the things that happened after the, dr the drafting of these constitutions, especially in the North. You see a number of uh, of northern states that uh, give the right to vote to propertied black men. And so, if you were uh, anyone white or black, you had to own a certain amount of property to have the right to vote. This is a common. Uh, requirement for voting. And so even in one state, I think it was New Jersey, there was even uh, the, the allowance of women who owned property, which is very unusual, as you can imagine at that time, but uh, they could vote as well. So uh, that property right was important to, to gain the right to vote, but uh, where black men had that right, they could they could vote as well. So these uh, these these rights were, were applied 
in a way that is somewhat surprising to us and and goes against the the ideas that are often promulgated today by many about the nature of American society at that time. You mentioned it. So if, do you mind talking about some of the myths? You've already touched on some of them that prevail. Is there some other myths that are getting pushed in the schools or in the media that you feel need to be addressed and you know set the record straight? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the major thing is to, to, if you just look at the period and the documents that uh, some of the major state documents uh, by Congress, for instance, the uh, Declaration of the First Continental Congress, which was drafted and promulgated in 1774. There was the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, which uh, Jefferson drafted, which is one of those documents that's often uh, overlooked because of uh, the more important uh, Declaration of Independence. But all of those documents provide the rationale for, for um, self-government among the colonies and also the basis upon which uh, opposition to slavery was most prominently promulgated. And one of the things that, that's interesting here is that, um, that uh, these are the types of documents that are ignored by uh, many of those who want to characterize the United States at this period as being uh, very much a, a racist and even I've, I've seen the idea of white supremacy being founded upon that, which is, I think, anachronistic if you think about it. Uh, I don't think there was a developed idea of white supremacy at this time. It's just the, the vague idea, I think, that most people had that, that uh, their society was, was uh, superior to others and that uh, their ethnic group was superior to others. And indeed, that's the, the common way that uh, people go through the world often if they haven't been uh, educated uh, from those ideas. That, uh, and indeed, those ideas still are, are pervasive uh, throughout the world. Many places, very pervasive, and other places, not so much. And I would argue that in the United States, uh, it's not a pervasive idea. There are still some people, of course, who are racist, but uh, I don't think that uh, racism is the prevailing notion that uh, is there, is here today. And so uh, it's, it's just interesting how that uh, so much of uh, the curriculum, whether it's in high school, uh, social studies or history classes, or in college, and certainly in graduate school, how that the idea that uh, that racism is at the heart of everything and is the explanation for everything, I, I just I have a real problem with that. First of all, because it's a very black and white way of looking at the world, and things are much more complex than that. Anyone who studies the history and, and actually reads the documents and, and reads letters that people wrote to one another and and uh, their shared experience in the laws. So you look at the, the legal documents as well. It becomes very clear that uh, there was a strong opposition to slavery. And indeed, there, there was 
uh, a recognition during the Revolutionary War period. Now, this this idea, uh, which seemed to be fairly uh, widespread in American society, uh, even get, uh, going into parts of the South, would uh, would uh, recede over time, especially in the South. But uh, the idea of equality was something that was very important. And in fact, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that if you if you look at um, how the Declaration of Independence is treated today by many, it's very interesting. This is something that I've I've encountered myself in doing seminars around the country for the Ashbrook Center. Is that there are many people who who argue that uh, the famous phrase that all men are created equal does not pertain to anyone but whites. In essence, uh, thereby, many scholars and teachers in our classrooms omit the natural rights foundation of the document. And so that is one of the 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 ideas that I, I will push back on, uh, in large part because it's very clear if you look at all all of the letters that were written, all the documents, uh, the the uh, debates in Congress that went on uh, for many years up to about 1820 during the Missouri Compromise uh, debates, for instance, uh, nobody denies that uh, Jefferson's phrase means all people. And he says all men are created equal, mm-hmm. that it refers to everyone, black, white, uh, of all ethnicities everywhere all of humanity. Uh, it's only about the time, uh, around the time of uh, the Missouri Compromise debates in Congress that you begin to have people say, well, that's that was Jefferson's idea that all men are created equal, but I don't agree to it. And of course, these were mostly congressmen uh, who uh, came from slaveholding societies. And really, it was only Roger B. Taney in 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, he was the first, as far as I can find, or anybody can find, I think, and, and indeed Lincoln himself stated that that was the first time that anyone had ever denied that that black pe- people were not meant to be included in that phrase. But from there, you have many people, uh, beginning with Stephen A. Douglas and many uh, Democratic politicians from that period down to today uh, who will argue and say that indeed uh, does not uh, include black people. And so that's interesting that the current folks that are supposedly anti-racist are adopting the views of racist like Tani and some of the Southern slave masters that they, they've picked up that narrative and are pushing it. How ironic. Yes, it is. It is very <laughs> ironic. It must be uh, kept in mind that there were, there were a number of things that were happening that were very positive uh, in the opposition to slavery during this period. Of, from uh, 1776 to 1801, I already mentioned that uh, there was gradual emancipation in the northern states. Uh, the last state, northern states, to, to uh, pass legislation uh, instituting uh, gradual emancipation were uh, New York State in 1799, I think New Jersey in 1801. There was a Quaker Walker case in 1783, which is a very interesting case in Massachusetts in the Supreme Judicial Court there, uh, in which the Chief Justice declared that slavery 
was contrary to the fundamental principles of the state constitution in Massachusetts, and therefore uh, slavery could no longer exist there. And that ended the, the institution of slavery in Massachusetts uh, in that one case. It has to be remembered that uh, many black men uh, own property and have the right to vote in several states, and even in one of the, the major uh, slaveholding states, North Carolina. Uh, so you you have you have more than just anomalies mm-hmm. uh, that that point to things were not quite as they're represented by many of the, the individuals who seem to want to to uh, present these ideas, the ideology of the period and uh, according to the sixteen nineteen project, which I think is uh, a travesty if you look at it from the the perspective of, of uh, facts and truth. It, it's, it misrepresents our history largely by by omitting so much of, of what we know went on at this time. And uh, that doesn't mean that things were perfect and that, uh, that uh, one of the, the great disappointments, I think, uh, for Jefferson and Madison and, and others uh, from that uh, Revolutionary War period, uh, that founding generation was the fact that uh, slavery did not uh, die out, uh, which is what they hoped would happen. They just uh, certainly Madison was was keen to see the institution of slavery die out, and, and um, even as an old man, he clung to certain schemes like the the colonization uh, society, which uh, sought to emancipate slaves and send them to uh, Africa and actually established uh, Liberia, uh, establishing a community there, which was named after James Monroe, uh, who was president at the time when Monrovia was established in Liberia, which is still the capital of that uh, country. So there are, are some really interesting things that are happening in our history, and much of it is ignored. Uh, because it's it's uh, inconvenient to the the type of uh, presentation of our history that uh, some people wish to to make uh, for their own purposes, I presume. Right. I want to ask you your own personal experience as a professor. Uh, somebody asked me this recently. Was I afraid sometimes of you know trying to tell the truth about history, given how these powerful forces today are pushing this other narrative? And of course, you had this phenomenon of of canceling, trying to get people fired, and that type of thing. What has your experience been in the classroom uh, when you present these ideas that are contrary to the? The general narrative. Well, I guess I'm lucky in that uh, I'm not uh, in a situation where it's uh, considered so critical that you provide a ba- basis uh, to those ideas. But um, I have students who who believe very strongly that uh, that uh, all men are created equal, and the Declaration of Independence does not include black people. I've had. Uh, I've had students that will push back, but I've never really had any problems as, as far as uh, administration uh, in my teaching at uh, at uh, Ashland University, uh, the graduate courses that I teach there. 
I'm pretty much allowed to to delve into whatever I want to, so long as it doesn't involve contemporary politics, mm-hmm. which is something that I think uh, most teachers should should uh, stay out of when they're teaching a course. Uh, I think that that's something that students should be allowed to to make up their own minds about. But uh, uh, instructors or professors in classrooms should not be pushing their own political agendas. That's that's my own opinion. However, when it comes to the facts of history uh, and you have people who wish to change history and wish to undermine uh, what I consider to be the, the, the most correct way of, of understanding what happened, uh, then I'm going to push back on that because it, it concerns uh, facts and interpretation of history and I think that's important to to maintain a certain amount of um, of of uh, independence as a, as a historian as a teacher. That uh, and so there are people who will try to intimidate you. I'm sure, and I've had some people who who will get angry with me about things. But that's all right. I that sort of thing never bothered me very much. I, I'm very willing to to engage. And I, I want to hear what the other side has to say as well. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say that I, my my understanding of history is absolute and and without er- error or or mistake. And so it's always good to hear the other side. But I would note that very seldom will you are you able to get those people who who have, hold those ideas about the 1619 project. And that particular interpretation of history, you you really cannot engage with those people. They they will not listen to you. And and if you have, uh, you can you can have also. I've seen evidence of it in in different uh, scholars who who oppose those ideas. How that uh, they're shouted down uh, by groups of students that uh, refuse to listen to an opposing view. So that that's very troubling to me. If you'd like to hear more of America's story in its attempt to rid itself of slavery, give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 231 a listen, where Vanderbilt University's R.J.M. Blackett talks about his book, Making Freedom, The Underground Railroad and the Politics of Slavery. Also, there's episode 258 with another Ashbrook Center professor, Dr. Jason Stevens, who tells us about the statesman Henry Clay and the part that he played in the lead-up to the Civil War. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Hold on to freedom. Freedom's all I think you hate.